It is Thursday, June 30th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola, and we are kicking off our division-by-division preview series. Jared, we've done this for a few years now. It really, like, we've gotten good feedback on it. I also think that it helps me to look at the whole picture to go team by team. You know, we spend lots of time thinking about players specifically that we like in drafts, either, you know, good values or players that we're avoiding because of where they're going. I think it's good to look at a whole team though, because it helps to give you that whole picture and sometimes even reveal things that you didn't realize you thought about certain players. Yeah. I mean, it's what I think we do when we do projections, but that was back in February for, for me, at least. So, you know, it's nice to kind of, do it all over again. And, you know, th- things have changed since February for a lot of these teams. So it's definitely useful and it's a good, you know, table setter before we get to camp and when things really start heating up in a few weeks here. And especially with the drafting landscape we have right now, where, you know, there are underdog drafts going on all the time and things have been changing. You know, they started out in January and it's constantly changing. So it helps to kind of step back too and see where players have moved, who you might feel differently about now than you did even a month ago. So it'll be a good exercise. We're going to go through each division today. We're going to start with the NFC West. You know, it's pretty easy to start in the East because that's where the day starts, but we like to do it in reverse and give some love to the West coast and hit them probably before they're even awake. That's right. I feel like we always start with like AFC West and then we go to AFC North South. So I feel like we, uh, I feel like we flipped it around this year. Uh, Keep everyone on their toes. Yeah. We'll start with the Arizona Cardinals. We'll go alphabetically. We're going to, we're still going to stick to that format and not give any love to the end of the alphabet, but Arizona Cardinals, Jared, tell me if anything has changed in that coaching staff and what we should expect from this offense on whole. No, yeah, no changes. We got Cliff Kingsbury back for his fourth season with Arizona. Um, I don't know. The, the offense hasn't been elite under Kingsbury yet, at least, but there, there's definitely been things to like. I mean, you know, you look at total points, they've gone 16th in Kingsbury's first season to 13th and then 11th. So they've improved there. Uh, 21st in total yards in Kingsbury's first season, but then sixth and eighth the past two seasons. And what I like and what we like to see, you know, when we're projecting fantasy points, this has been a fast paced, high volume offense. Uh, the Cardinals have been fourth, first, and seventh in situation neutral pace under Kingsbury. They were 22nd in total plays his first season, but then they've been fourth and eighth over the last two seasons. Uh, they've been pass leaning. If you look at situation neutral pass rate, they've finished fifth, 12th, and fourth in situation neutral pass rate. Um, I kind of ex- expect that to continue. I think we're going to see a lot of the, the same stuff this year. It's going to be a fast paced offense. And it's going to be a, a pass leaning offense. 15th in overall offensive DVOA, according to football outsiders last year, 19th in that category the year before. I think there was a lot of excitement about Cliff Kingsbury as an offensive coach coming in, especially with Kyler Murray as his quarterback right away. It seems like that has cooled enough where I don't know that Cliff Kingsbury is overrated overall right now. I think as long as you don't look at this and think, oh, Cliff Kingsbury is a great offensive coach. What's he going to do with these guys? As long as you're not considering this offense that way, you're doing okay. I'm not going to downgrade them for Kingsbury right now. I think they kind of are what we've seen at this point. We'll see if there's further upside and we'll get to the specific players, but I think they've at least laid a good base for what we can expect going forward. And that includes basically being 56-44 in pass run ratio each of the past two years. 
Yeah, and I put him at 57% pass this season. Um, I think, you know, the backfield's a little thinner with losing Chase Edmonds, and they had Marquise Brown. We'll get to him, but I think that's a big addition. It's just a facet to that offense they haven't really had. You know, they tried to do it, I think, with Andy Isabella, who's that, you know, smaller speed guy. I think Brown is, you know, a proven commodity as that, you know, Isabella just totally flamed out. I feel like saying Andy Isabella at this point is like when somebody says the secret word in Pee Wee's Playhouse, (laughs) which might have been before your time, but we were all supposed to scream when that happens. So I won't do it now um, just in case the folks on the West coast are waking up. Mm-hmm. We'll start going uh, position by position. We'll go to quarterback first, Kyler Murray and Jared, my, I guess my biggest concern for Kyler Murray. And I say it's a relative concern. I'm not actually concerned, but the thing that he has to overcome is that his top three in targets over the past two years have been Deandre Hopkins, Christian Kirk, and Chase Edmonds, two of those guys are gone completely. The first is gone for the first six games. So, you know, even if we like Marquise Brown, things are changing quite a bit from what Kyler Murray's had to work with over the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I think flipping out Christian Kerr for Marquise Brown is an upgrade. Um, you know, losing Hopkins for the first six games hurts, but he'll, you know, have him the rest of the way. Zach Ertz last year proved to be, you know, I think the best tight end that, that Kyler's had at the pro level. So I think there's, there's plenty of weapons here to work with. Murray is improving. You look at, you know, stuff like completion rate, adjusted completion rate, PFF passing grade, all that stuff. He's improved each year. He's been in the NFL. He was actually second league wide in completion rate last season, fourth in yards per attempt. He was third in PFF passing grade. So he's really developed as a passer. And we know he is, you know, one of the best running quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, it's Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray to me the top three runners so Kyler to me is in that top quarterback tier you can kind of argue the order uh, but he he's usually goes at the end of that tier you know he pretty regularly goes behind Josh Allen Justin Herbert Mahomes Lamar Jackson um, so he uh, Murray's a guy I've been I've been drafting quite a bit of early on yeah his average depth of target has increased every year his yards per pass attempt passer rating touchdown rate have exceeded have grown every year and he has yet to get past five percent passing touchdown rate now maybe he just kind of stays in that range, which would be okay. That's just a little above the middle of the league. But, you know, there's also obviously room for a spike on that, even if it's for a year here and there. So there is touchdown upside to Kyler Murray. Last year brought us three-year lows in yards per carry and yards per game. More carries per game last year than his rookie year, but it was down versus 2020. I would expect that he and the Cardinals would like to keep him down a little bit from where he was in 2020. Last year's rushing was was plenty, though. I mean, I think we knew coming off of 2020 that we should not expect mm-hmm. him to run again like that, especially the 11 rushing touchdowns. And I would not expect him to get back anywhere close to that. But if we get, you know, five or six rushing scores a year, somewhere in the 600 to 750 rushing yards per year, uh, that's more than enough to sustain him at the level you're talking about. I guess my biggest concern with Murray is it's, you know, he's kind of gotten – beaten up every year in the NFL. So, so far he's a smaller guy. He, he runs a lot. He takes hits and he, he's, you know, he, he hasn't missed a lot of games, but his production has tended to tail off uh, late in the season, which is, you know, especially we're talking about these basketball tournaments. That's when you need him to be giving you those, you know, big spike weeks. So that's the concern there, but you know, may, maybe a little less running would, would help there. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about his ADP after you go through the other positions, but next up is running back, which has changed quite a bit. It's not necessarily all different people because James Conner was on the team last year, but the way that Arizona handled signing or not signing running backs this offseason, I think tells us a lot. So Chase Edmonds entered last year as kind of the touch leader. And, you know, we don't really know how that would have played out if they had both stayed healthy the whole way. But then at when both Chase Edmonds and James Conner hit free agency, 
Arizona let Chase Edmonds walk to Miami for $6 million a year over two years, just one of those years guaranteed. They re-signed James Conner for $7 million a year over three years with two years guaranteed. So not only did they say, we're fine without Chase Edmonds, they said, what we really need is James Conner back. And to me, Jared, that says... He may, he might not work like a workhorse like he did when Edmonds was out late last year, but it yeah. sure seems like they want him closer to that than any type of compliment. Yeah, that was a nice contract Connor got. He's 10th among running backs in average annual salary, and he's ninth in guaranteed money. So, you know, they, they paid him to be the lead back. Um, we saw what he could do as a lead back. Connor got six games last season that Chase Edmonds missed. He was third among running backs and expected PPR points per game in those six games. And he was second in actual PPR points per game, uh, 16.7 carries and 5.3 targets per game. Um, he was uh, looking at efficiency stuff. He was kind of average as a ball carrier last season. He was one of the best pass catching backs. If you look at yards per route run PFF receiving grade last year. So I think he's going to hang on to that role for sure. You know, we'll see if guys like, you know, Benjamin or Daryl Williams cuts into the rushing workload. I don't expect, it to happen much. Um, I think, you know, Connor, when he's healthy, and that's always been the issue with him, when he's healthy, I feel good about him being at least a top 12 fantasy back, and you know, he could be a top seven or eight type of guy. Yeah, I agree. We've seen him do it in Pittsburgh before as well. And I mean, you know, the the mediocre efficiency stuff, that's fine. We'll take that. That's kind of the basis of running backs don't matter is a guy can be like that on the efficiency front. And if he's getting touches, then he's an excellent fantasy back. And the way that they treated him this offseason says that they want to give Connor the ball more than they did with, say, the James Connor chase Edmonds split last year or the chase Edmonds kenyon Drake split before that. It looks like they want to you know, feature James Conner in this year's backfield behind him. You mentioned the guys, you know, Benjamin, Daryl Williams. And as soon as the Cardinals signed Daryl Williams, I was like, okay, they brought in somebody because they don't believe in, you know, Benjamin. So I took some late Daryl Williams, but lately we've gotten a couple of reports, one from like direct quote from Cliff Kingsbury. And then another from a former Cardinals writer that, you know, Benjamin's had a really good spring. So I don't know about you, Jared, but lately I've swung from Daryl Williams to getting some, you know, Benjamin because he's sticking around till the very end of drafts going like RB 70 range. I think it's absolutely a battle between these two for that second running back spot heading into training camp. I haven't been drafting either guy, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I feel like there's been, you know, Benjamin buzz before. Um, I don't know. He, he's, you know, just look at the profile, you know, seventh round pick. Um, hasn't done much across two NFL seasons. Now, you know, he had no touches as a rookie. Then he had 34 carries last year, 3.5 yards per carry, poor pro football focus grade. So, um, he's, he's just not a guy I'm excited about as a player, oh, kind, yeah. kind of same thing with Darrell Williams. I mean, he was good last year when he got a chance, but that, that's in Kansas city. It's kind of easy to be good as a running back, although uh, Clyde Edwards Alaire might, might say differently, but, um, I, I just think, again, I think Connor's going to dominate work when he's healthy. So I don't think either. Benjamin or Williams would have standalone value. And then if Connor goes down, I think you're looking at a committee. Um, you know, Benjamin's a smaller guy and he's capable of handling a big workload. And, you know, Williams has kind of you know, been a, been a bit player throughout his career. So I, I don't see a lot of upside to either, either of those backups. Yeah. I wouldn't call either a guy to chase, but if we're looking at last round and especially in a time when Benjamin's not really getting drafted all the time, uh, I like tossing in a few shares, especially given that there's some history of, um, Durability issues with James Carter, sure. I would say. For sure. Yep. But on to the pass catchers, because I think that's a much more interesting group overall. And, you know, let's start with Marquise Brown, since he's the new guy and he is the hot guy in terms of ADP so far. What do you what do you like about Marquise Brown? You're actually, before you get to Marquise Brown and the pros, 
I mean, it's worth remembering that he was the lead receiver for the one year where Kyler Murray was the starting quarterback at Oklahoma, finished ahead of CeeDee Lamb in receptions and receiving yards in that season. Yeah, it sure sounds like Murray either had something to to do with Arizona acquiring – Hollywood Brown or that, you know, Arizona did it to kind of appease him because there you know, were some issues between Murray and the team before that. It seems like those have kind of been ironed out for now. So love the fit here. Love that, you know, Kyler has been awesome throwing deep, uh, especially last year. He was he was first in PFF passing grade and second in adjusted completion rate on passes 20 plus yards downfield. And, you know, that's a big part of Hollywood Brown's game. He has that speed. You like that Brown, you know, he's had huge target shares the last two seasons, 28% and 27% the past two years, fifth and 13th most among wide receivers. I don't expect him to, to get there as a Cardinal because the target competition is tougher than what he faced in Baltimore, but you like seeing that he was able to, you know, attract that type of target share. So um, we'll see. I think there's a, there's a chance that even after Hopkins returns from that suspension, that Hollywood kind of sticks as the lead guy here, you know, maybe the one A to Hopkins one B. Because I have some concerns with Hopkins. We'll get to him next. And then I, I think there's just a chance that Hollywood gets off to a hot start in those first six games and just sort of, you know, keeps that momentum rolling. And as I mentioned, that A dot for Kyler Murray has been creeping up. And Marquise Brown certainly profiles as a guy who helps that number. So let's go ahead and move on to DeAndre Hopkins, who, of course, is going to miss the first six games because of a PED positive test. You know, he, he has talked about some of the details around that. It doesn't really matter for our purposes. We just know that there will be six games without DeAndre Hopkins to open the season. What are your concerns beyond that once he is back on the field? No, he, he had the injury stuff last year. He missed uh, seven full games and most of an eighth with a hamstring injury and then a knee injury. The knee injury required surgery. I, you know, I th- it sounds like he's already close to 100%. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. He had been super durable before that. So I'm not really concerned about the injury stuff, but his, his play did seem to drop off last season. He, he was okay in fantasy because he, he scored a bunch of touchdowns. He had a 19% touchdown rate last season, which was easily a career high. It was, you know, 11 percentage points higher than his average over his first eight NFL seasons, but Hopkins catches and yards per game last year were his fewest since his 2013 rookie season. Uh, He earned the third worst PFF receiving grade of his career last year uh the target share was way down you know down from 28 percent in his first year with the cardinals to about 21 and a half percent last year so i just wonder if hopkins is sort of in the decline phases of his career and i think you know he can decline and still be a good receiver and a good fantasy asset i just i'm, I'm kind of betting against him being that you know true alpha dominant target hog uh, you know this season once he once he returns from that uh, six game suspension Yeah. And that target share dip was, you know, our main concern in his first year with the Cardinals after he came over and traded from Houston because he was a target monster there. Then he comes to a new team. And I was surprised that he remained the level of target hog that he was his first year in Arizona. So I guess stepping back to look at that now, it's probably less surprising that last year he dipped in that category than it was that he stayed high in that category the year before. Um, We'll see. It's not usually a good idea to count on touchdowns to make up for that, but we're also seeing the price way down on Hopkins versus last year. So um, we'll get to all the ADPs in a moment, but the other guys competing with Brown and eventually Hopkins for targets, Rondale Moore, AJ Green is back on a one-year contract. Zach Ertz is back on a two-year contract. So those are the main competitors. We got some other young guys mixed in, but um, anything you like or specifically dislike (laughs) among those other three? I mean, I, I'm not throwing in the towel on Rondell Moore yet. Um, just the way he was – I mean, we we literally haven't seen a wide receiver used 
like more was last year, at least in like a long, long time, basically since like you can find average depth of target information, uh, 1.2 yard dot for Rondell Moore last season. The, the next lowest was 4.9 yards. That was Braxton Berrios. That, you know, that's a three and a half yard difference. Um, well, there so you Moore go. Used... Like Grupo Rondale more than you have <laughs> Braxton Berrios. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it, his usage has to change for him to have any chance of being a fantasy factor. Cliff Kingsbury has already basically said that, you know, they're, they're going to u- utilize him in, in different ways this season. Uh, I do think Moore's role at least has a chance to expand. You know, to me, Christian Kirk's departure is the best news for Rondell Moore because Kirk played 79% of his snaps in the slot last season. That's where Rondell Moore is going to play. So he has a chance to claim that role. Um, if, if he's up to it, he, he should get it. You know, the, the question for me is if, you know, Moore struggles early on, what happens when Hopkins comes back? Do they, you know, sit more, get AJ Green, keep him on the field and, you know, put either Hopkins or Marquise Brown in the slot. But uh, the opportunity is there for Moore and he's cheap enough in drafts right now where I think he's definitely worth a shot. Yeah, so several factors, I think, have combined to make this as good a situation in year two for more as it could be. Um, We've got, as you mentioned, Christian Kirk leaving. We've got Chase Edmonds leaving. And we've got DeAndre Hopkins out for the first six games. So the, the opportunity is right there. Obviously, he still needs to be used differently from last year. But there should at least be targets available, even if they remain too close to the line of scrimmage. Now, there's lots of who's going to be the next Debo, who's going to be used like Debo. I think Rondale Moore is probably the best suited player to be used in the way that Debo Samuel was at the end of last year. Now, I don't think that that's a good thing in general for a wide receiver, but that would be a good thing versus what Rondale Moore was last year. And I think because it could be a combo of, you know, even a little bit better Rondale Moore by getting those targets downfield. Plus, you know, the good part of a running back where maybe he takes those Chase Edmonds targets that we don't think are going to go to, Eno Benjamin or Daryl Williams. So if Rondell Moore can get a decent amount of rushing work and a decent amount of receiving work, he can be a decent player. I still think that the ceiling is very limited and I remain unexcited for redraft purposes, but I'm certainly not giving up on him, like you said. And he's He's in like the mid fifties and ADP right now. So nobody's like, yeah, this is Rondell Moore smash season. Yeah. Moore did average 1.5 more yards after catch than expected. According to NFL next gen stats last season, that was 12th best among wide receivers. So he, he at least was good with the ball in his hands after the catch, which I think, you know, was his biggest selling point coming into the NFL. Then we've got AJ green. We got Zach Ertz. I, they, they just kind of are what they are at this point. AJ yeah. green is fine. He can still play football. He's not a star and he's probably not going to command too many targets. And Zach Ertz still pretty good for a tight end. Yeah. So AJ green last year, he was wide receiver 41 in, in PPR points. He was 37th in expected PPR points. I think he might be around there for those first six games of the season with DeAndre Hopkins out. Uh, so I, green, someone I might be more interested in once you get into like traditional lineup setting league, someone to just, you know, maybe give you a few starting weeks early on. But I, again, I think ideally for Arizona from, you know, week seven on, it's going to be Hopkins and, and Brown on the outside around them more in the slot. And AJ Green's going to be off the field for, for the most part. Yeah, I would think that's how Arizona would hope that it will be at yeah. that point. Trey McBride, Antoine Wesley are also in the mix. I think Antoine Wesley is really only a consideration like at the very end of a best ball tournament draft on a Kyler Murray team where it's like a just in case Antoine Wesley scores in week 17, I'll have one of the few shares sure. of him. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think Trey McBride is the more interesting guy here. You know, the first tight end taken in this, this spring's draft, 55th overall pick. 
We'll see. I mean, I mean, Zach Ertz was good last year in Arizona. I think it's definitely worth noting that eight of his 11 games with the Cardinals came without DeAndre Hopkins. And, you know, Ertz saw uh, just 4.7 targets, averaged 4.7 targets in his three games with Hopkins, 8.4 targets in the other eight. So he definitely benefited from Hopkins being out. Um, Ertz does turn 32 in November. So I think there's, you know, he's going to open the season as a clear lead guy here. But I think there's a chance that, you know, McBride starts to cut into his work as we get you know, later and later into the year. Yeah, certainly worth noting, too, that they paid Zach Ertz to keep him uh, in the offseason. He did hit free agency and that generally tight ends take a little bit of time to develop. And it was yep. uh, Trey McBride was a day two pick. So I would certainly not begin expecting a lot, but there's room for him to emerge um, if things swing in his direction this year. For sure. Yep. ADP review, we're going to look team-wide and kind of compare these guys at where they're going. We're using underdog ADP right here. Of course, we mentioned it a couple of times already, but I know Jared has been drafting an underdog all offseason. I have as well. And if you go to underdog now, if you don't have an account yet, set up an account. You use the promo code SHARKS. You will get a deposit match up to 100 bucks on your first deposit. So go do that. And you can maybe draft against us when you're in there. So maybe take some of the advice that we're talking about in this very show or maybe take your very own draft sharks draft war room that can sync to those underdog drafts and give you pick by pick recommendations throughout. So we're just trying to set you up to win some money this year. These are the ADPs that you're going to look at as you're deciding who to draft. And Jared, we got Kyler Murray at QB five to start things off. I think it's an appropriate price for him. He's certainly somebody that's in the mix for me in that range. Yeah. I mean, to me, you can argue Murray anywhere from quarterback two to quarterback five. Those guys are all pretty close to me and he's going the latest among those guys. I mean, he's, he's, his ADP is actually in the early sixth round. So man, sixth round Kyler Murray to me looks really nice, especially in best ball. I mean, he, he, other than Josh Allen, Murray has scored 35 plus fantasy points in the highest percentage of games over the, the past few seasons. So he gives you those big spike weeks that you want in best ball. Yeah. I would add Jalen hurts in the same category. I think Kyler Murray and Jalen hurts are pretty similar um, and I wouldn't argue somebody saying that Kyler Murray is clearly, you know, right ahead of Jalen Hurts. Uh, yeah. James Conner is at running back 15 late in the third round in underdog drafts. And uh, he looks like a value to me right there. Yeah, big time. I've taken a lot of James Conner. You know, we have him like RB7 or RB8. Um, I got, it, it, to me, the only argument against him is the injury stuff. And, you know, RBs get hurt. That's, 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 that's part of the game. Right. I think the only argument is I don't want to take a running back right there. I took, I'll take one early and then I'm skipping over that. And if that's what you're doing, fine. But if you're not, then James Conner is well within the mix and perfectly capable of, of well outscoring that RB 15 range. And you mentioned earlier, Jared, he was the, it's easy to look at his numbers and say, well, he's not going to score touchdowns at that rate that he did last year. But you mentioned the expected fantasy points over that stretch where he yeah. was the lead back. And that was right in line with how he scored. So he doesn't need outlandish uh, touchdown rate because he should be getting a lot more touches throughout this season. Yeah, I mean, he had the 15 rushing scores last year, but he was third in carries inside the 10-yard line and second in carries inside the five-yard line. So he overachieved, but like if that usage continues, he's still going to be one of the best touchdown bets at the position. Yeah, and it should. It seems like they wanted to give that work to him as opposed to keeping Kyler Murray taking as many touches in that range. And certainly James Conner looks better close to the goal line than Kenyon Drake did. Daryl Williams, Eno Benjamin, uh, RB49, RB68, respectively. Both of those guys actually up a little bit from where they were. Again, neither is at all an exciting option, but I think if you're at the end of the draft and you're looking at like a sixth running back, Eno Benjamin's interesting. 
said RB. Okay, you said RB forty nine for one of them. I, I was that that can't be right. Yeah, that's a William Daryl Williams RB forty nine right now. Is he really? At least on the non superflex underdog, and I know that right now you know the the superflex puppy's closing up, so that's the bulk yeah, of the drafting on there. So this might be a lagging um, ADP on him. So I'm not sure exactly where you would find him, but yeah. he's definitely still at least going in the fifties in uh, underdog drafts among running back. No, yeah, I'm looking at ADP from the last two weeks, and he's RB49, which is crazy to me and i i take at least the next 10 guys behind him over williams pretty easily yeah i took some daryl williams when he was around rb60 uh i'm i would switch over to eno benjamin in any of those spots right now just you know sure. on the recent buzz on him and we'll see and if Eno benjamin climbs then he's going to be off my board as well wide receivers i mentioned a lot more interesting marquise brown wide receiver 15 deandre hopkins wide receiver 36 rondale moore wide receiver 55 aj green wide receiver 82 what do you like or dislike in there man i want to be in on hollywood brown but wide receiver 15 is yeah. expensive again like if, if hopkins is, was out for the year then i think that would make perfect sense for Hollywood Brown, but Hopkins is going to come back and see his fair share of targets. So I'm not taking much Hollywood at wide receiver 15 Hopkins. I, I kind of like, again, I have concerns. Like I think he's probably past his prime at this point. Um, but especially in these best ball tournaments where the, the late season weeks count most, you know, you're, you're going to have Hopkins for those weeks, assuming he doesn't get hurt. So um, I, I think he makes sense at wide receiver 36. And then again, uh, Rondell Moore, wide receiver 55. I think that he's discounted plenty um, where, you know, despite kind of an underwhelming rookie season, uh, I'm going to give, I'm going to give more another shot if I can get him in the you know 10th round. If DeAndre Hopkins was not going to play at all this year, I think wide receiver 15 would be, a fair price for Marquise Brown. It wouldn't even be like, oh, he's a value at wide receiver 15. I think it's way too high for him at this point. I think not only that, you have to take Marquise Brown late in the third, maybe early fourth if he gets to that point, because that's right where his ADP is. Then you have to believe from there that you can still get Kyler Murray, I think, to actually maximize the value of getting Marquise Brown there. So it's not even like you can take the quarterback and then stack Marquise Brown with him. So to me, it's just not an attractive proposition. And if I am taking... Kyler Murray, I'm much more interested in Hopkins at wide receiver 36, where we've already got those mixed, those missed games baked in and, you know, plenty of weekly upside once he is back. Uh, Hopkins, the more interesting one more is interesting, although not somebody that I feel like is a must, even if I have Kyler Murray. And then after that, I'm probably most interested in Zach Ertz for my Kyler Murray teams who's at tight end 10. Yeah, Ertz, Ertz is okay. Um, and AJ Green's not a guy I'm taking in these best balls just because I think, again, I think if he helps you, it's going to be early in the season. And, and that, that's still worth something. But I, I'd rather, you know, I'd, I'd rather take someone who I think has a chance to, you know, help me in those in those big money weeks late. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for me, this really isn't that intriguing an offense for best ball drafts right now. We'll see kind of where guys settle when we get to lineup setting. But uh, beyond Kyler Murray, I'm not excited about the, the pass catchers. And if I don't have Kyler Murray, I'm probably passing over all these guys unless somebody slips an ADP. Yeah. Kyler and, and uh, James Conner for me have been guys that I'm taking quite a bit. Um, usually not on the same team. I don't love that correlation there. Cause I think you know, they're going to be kind of fighting for those touchdowns near the goal line. But yes, yeah, so those two guys primarily and the wide receivers have been taking a little bit of Hopkins and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do like James Conner, as we alluded to before. We'll move on to the L.A. Rams, and they have a coaching change. The offensive coordinator, Kevin O'Connell, has gone to head up the Minnesota Vikings now after spending two years as the Rams O.C., one year as Washington's O.C. before that. Uh, for some teams, that would matter. For the Rams, it's tough for me to care that the offensive coordinator leaves because Sean McVay is like the offensive CEO 
And then there's just somebody as the VP under him before um, Kevin O'Connell. We had passing game coordinator, Shane Waldron move on to Seattle to be the OC. We had QBs coach Zach Taylor move on to become the head coach in Cincinnati. So we've got a new offensive coordinator. It's Liam Cohen. He was a Rams assistant from 2018 to 2020 spent last year as the OC and QBs coach at Kentucky. And it was a good year for the Kentucky offense. Wandale Robinson broke out as you all are probably aware at this point, quarterback, Will Levis had a good season in his first year as a starter after transferring from Penn state. And that team had a clear lead running back in Christopher Rodriguez jr. Who had 225 carries nearly tripling the next running back on the team and averaged 6.1 yards per rush, all that in the sec. So you know, good track record for Liam Cohen, again, moving into an offense where we don't tend to worry about the loss of an offensive coach. Yeah, I know Wendell Robinson transferred to Kentucky in large part because he wanted to play for Liam Cohen. So it seems like a guy that the players believe in. And he comes from Sean McVay to begin with. So we know that he's familiar with the system. Run pass split didn't change a whole lot with Matthew Stafford there last year. Overall, 60-40 pass run. The pass rate was up a few percentage points versus 2020, but just the second highest among the five Sean McVay seasons there. And if you look at the situation neutral pass rate, here's how it went over those five seasons. 55 55.1, 56.1, 55.7, 57.1. So last year was the highest in situation neutral pass rate but right in line with the previous four seasons. So I think we pretty much know what to expect in terms of run pass split from this offense. Yeah. And I'm projecting something definitely closer to last year because, you know, you, you go from Jared Goff to Matt Stafford. I think it, it makes sense that you're going to want to throw the ball more. A um, couple of notes I had here. Um, the Rams averaged 62.2 offensive plays per game last season. That was their fewest in five seasons under McVay. And, but by a pretty wide margin, the previous three years, they were at 68 plays per game, 65.9 and 66.3. Um, they were still 11th in pace last season and fourth in situation neutral pace. So the, the lower play volume sort of looks fluky to me. So I, I'm projecting them for more plays this season, you know, something closer to where they were at the previous three seasons. So you like that when you're looking at these guys from a fantasy perspective. Also, you had 80% of the Rams offensive touchdowns come in the passing game last season. That number didn't climb above 62% in any of Sean McVay's first four seasons. So I think there could be some, you know, flip back with, you know, more rushing touchdowns, fewer passing touchdowns for this team in in 2022. Yeah. If you just look at Matthew Stafford matching his career high in touchdown passes, it's likely to come down. Certainly 17 games helped that, but his touchdown rate was up versus his career rate there. So we'll move on to Stafford now. And, you know, it was obviously a good year. Completion rate was up a career high PFF adjusted completion rate a career best PFF passing and overall grade. Um, His average target depth was actually a little bit down, but that doesn't really matter. So Matthew Stafford, a very good passing year overall. One thing we do have to watch is after the season, he had an anti-inflammatory shot in his right elbow. It's not something, Jared, that I'm adjusting my Matthew Stafford outlook for right now. But it's something to watch if we get into training camp and we're like, they're going to we're going to give Matthew Stafford a couple of days off to rest that elbow. Right. He didn't throw it all during the offseason program, which it sounds like that was kind of the plan from the get go. He's expected to be ready to go for for training camp. So if if that's the case, no concerns. But if he's not throwing or if he's even taking days off, like you mentioned, I think it'll be something to at least 
consider. So, you know, my two concerns with Stafford, that's one of them. The other is that the Rams lost, lost left tackle Andrew Whitworth to retirement, and they lost guard Austin Corbett to Carolina in free agency. So this was a really strong O-line last year. They lost two stars and might take a step back. Um, so that, that'll be something to, you know, keep an eye on in the preseason and, and even early in the season. Fortunately, we've seen in Matthew Stafford's history that he can play with the dragging his right <laughs> shoulder around the field. As yep. I mentioned, he did have the highest touchdown rate of his career last year, so that's likely coming down. He also had the highest INT rate since his 10-game rookie season, so that's probably coming down as well. Touchdowns matter more to us for fantasy purposes, but you know, just a reminder that there was some negative in there that has regression potential. Matthew Stafford finished QB 11 in points per game last year, QB 5 in total fantasy points. He's going QB 12 right now in underdog, so he seems appropriately priced, and I'm not sure how much there is to even say about him. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and he loses Robert Woods, Odell Beckham, and, and Gaines, Allen Robinson. So to me, that's kind of a wash. I mean, it might even end up being an upgrade if we kind of you know get pre twenty twenty one Allen Robinson back. So yeah, I think um, I expect a, a similar season, honestly, to what we got last year from, from Matt Stafford and you know where he's going in ADP. He feels like a, a pretty safe bet. Mm-hmm. Running back gets more interesting to talk about though. Mm-hmm. Cam Akers, Daryl Henderson are the top two guys. What we don't know is exactly how Sean McVay will deploy the two of them when they're working together. Cause we have not seen much of both of those guys being healthy at the same time over the past two years. What we do know is that Sean McVay has favored a clear lead back. He did so throughout last year, even though that lead back was three different guys at various points because of injuries. And he, you know, he went to acres as the pretty clear lead back throughout the playoffs last season, despite that he was, you know, what, six months removed from a torn Achilles, which usually, you know, costs guys at least nine months, sometimes up to 12 months. So it was a surprise that acres was even playing acres was, was bad by any metric you look at in the playoffs last season, 2.6 yards per carry. Um, his PFF rushing gate was 41.1. That would have easily been dead last among running backs during the regular season. But I mean, I just don't know how much stock to put into that because again, he was, you know, six months removed from a serious injury that usually costs guys a year. My question is just, you know, does another six months off or, you know, nine months off by the time we get to week one, what's that going to do to acres? Is he going to get back to pre-injury form? Cause I, I know, you know, there's not a long list of guys coming off Achilles injuries that have, you know, kind of came back to what they were before really been fantasy assets at all. Um, so that's the big, big question there. Um, but I don't know. Acres is going late enough in fantasy drafts that I've definitely been, you know, tempted, tempted to grab him in a few spots. I was shocked that he came back during last year and then shocked further that they forced him into that number one running back role that soon off an injury and kept him there for the most part until like the Super Bowl, despite the lack of efficiency. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. 2.6 yards per carry, and they were still like, nah, just keep handing it to Cam Akers. He's our best option. So that is what my takeaway from the playoffs, much more than anything about how Cam Akers looked, because I expected him to not be very good when he got back on the field. I think it's also worth remembering that this team drafted Cam Akers in round two, heading into Daryl Henderson's second season. Then Akers, as a rookie, beat Daryl Henderson by two carries per game to lead that year's backfield, despite navigating injuries that year as well. So what I'm going to be watching in training camp is to see if we get any reports like, oh, Cam Akers looks awesome. He looks back to his old self. Obviously, any indications on what the planned workload split is. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect, of course, is ADP. And we'll get you know further into that later. But as long as he's going at a value spot where I'm not saying it's definitely Cam Akers, there's 
RB1 level upside here. So it makes it worth betting on even through some uncertainty. Yeah, to me, he's like the the latest running back in drafts right now that has like a legit chance to be be, to be a true workhorse. You know, he's going like the fourth round. You get him in the fifth round sometimes. So that's tempting to me. Yeah. So so Akers and Henderson only played one game together last season. That was the Super Bowl. Um, Akers outsnapped Henderson in that game, fifty seven percent to thirty two percent. It was thirteen carries for Akers to four for Henderson. Henderson saw five targets to Akers four. Um, so Akers was still definitely the clear lead guy, even with Henderson back last season. And the, the last note I have on, you know, Akers struggles in the playoffs. He did face a tough slate of run defense. It was it was the Cardinals, Bucks, 49ers, Bengals. All four of those teams finished top 13 in football outsiders run defense DVOA last season. And, and the, the Rams running game struggled in general in the playoffs. The other running backs, you know, besides Akers, averaged 2.9 yards per carry. So, you know, it wasn't like they were they were excelling and Acres was struggling. It was just it was a, it was a tough go all around. Yeah, I only wish I had bet more money on the Acres under rushing yards. Um, the one other guy that might factor in right now, we'll see if there are any offseason moves. But Kyron Williams was drafted. Uh, we will see about him. First of all, he was kind of a, a lackluster prospect in terms of testing numbers, at least. But then he also broke a bone in his foot in the spring. So. I don't think that bodes well for early production. We'll see if something changes later in the summer to indicate that he's going to be more of a factor. Yeah, I think he might steal some passing down snaps. That's kind of, I don't think there's upside to Williams this season, but I think he could, you know, take some from the other guys if he, if he, you know, earns a passing down role. Pass catchers, Cooper Cup starts everything here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's difficult for everything to go right for a player the way that it did for Cooper Cup again, but. We look at where he finished. He was 2.8 more half PPR points per game than the number two wideout. 3.8 half PPR points per game ahead of number three. 5.2 ahead of number four. So can he have such a dominant fantasy season again? Probably not. But when you start from that dominant a position, you can come back some and still be the number one. You know, it's we get to this point every year and it's like, well, he's not going to finish number one again because nobody finishes number one, uh, two straight years, you know, relatively speaking, but we know that we're talking about the safest bet. And when you look further at the numbers with Cooper cup, he, he didn't really do outlandish things to reach that level. It was a bunch of things going the way that they needed to just combining. Yeah, I still think Cup is the most likely wide receiver to lead the position in fantasy points this season. It's honestly probably like twenty five percent only, but I think it's it's the highest. He's the highest chance to do it. Now, like you said, I mean, he he just, it's pretty simple. He just saw a ton of targets, and he was super efficient with those targets because he's a good player. He was playing with the best quarterback of his career. Um, he ranked second among eighty nine qualifying wide receivers in PFF receiving grade. Easily led those eighty nine wide receivers in yards per route run. I mean, yeah, he scored on 11% of his catches, which is a high touchdown rate, but it's not crazy. I like guys do that all the time. He had a cup had an 8.3% touchdown rate uh, over his first four seasons with Jared Goff. So like, I mean, yeah, we're not projecting him to score as many fantasy points as last year, but you know, he is still our, our wide receiver one. And I think a guy that we're both taking in the, in the top three of drafts. Yeah. And if you cut out 2020, when he had the big TD drop, then his touchdown rate from the first three seasons was nearly identical to what his rate was last year. So, you know, is 11% high? Yes. But is it a repeatable high? Yes. It's a number you can reach again, or at least get close to otherwise 31% target share. That's very high. 
but he's certainly capable of dominating targets again. It's not like it was him and nobody else last year. They had Robert Woods plus Odell Beckham getting to nearly 20%. They did have Tyler Higby. They did have Van Jefferson. They did have the running game throughout the year. The catch rate was high, the highest of his career, but at 75.9%, it was his fourth straight season over 70%. 13.4 yards per catch was just the third most for Cup in his five seasons. So again, they were all good numbers, but not none of those individual numbers is unrepeatable. Yeah, I don't know if you heard, he was our uh, comeback player of the year last year too, so that was, that was nice. That's right. Nobody loves Cooper <laughs> Cup more than we do. Just giving the reasons that it's okay to still love him. And I think that he should be strongly considered as the top overall pick in any PPR or half PPR draft. Not saying there's one guy yep. that I would take number one every time, but Cooper Cup would probably be my most frequent number one in both of those formats because he is a safer pick than either of the top two running backs, I believe. Yeah, to me, it's Cup, Jonathan Taylor, or Christian McCaffrey as the top tier in drafts. I think those guys should be the, the first three picks off the board in every draft. Allen Robinson is the new number two. What do you got on him? Because he stunk last year. Yeah, he, he was bad. And obviously, it was a bad offensive situation. But I think he was bad even you know, factoring that in. Um, you know, he was he was basically useless in fantasy. He finished 94th among wide receivers in PPR points per game. And if you look at some efficiency stuff, so 89 wide receivers saw 50-plus targets last season. Robinson 65th among those 89 in PFF receiving grade, 80th among those 89 in yards per out run. And I mean, you can compare him to his teammate, Darnell Mooney, Mooney 30th in PFF grade, 38th in yards per out run. So it was bad last year for Allen Robinson. You have to be willing to bet on a bounce back. I kind of am. I mean, he, he was a good receiver every year of his career prior to that. He still turns just 29 in August. So I'm not really worried about the age yet. Um, and it's it's just you know a massive upgrade if you look at the Bears offense versus the Rams. I mean, the Bears were 23rd or lower in total points, total yards, pass attempts, pass yards, and pass touchdowns last season. The Rams were 10th or better in all five of those metrics. Yeah, should be happy to be in his new place, should be motivated to rebound from last year. So it's, it's easy to like Allen Robinson. We'll get to his ADP in a few minutes. Van Jefferson, the third guy there. And, you know, normally you don't pay too much attention to the third receiver, but this is the offense that runs more three wide receiver sets than any other in the league. So Van Jefferson was a full-time player last year, even with Cooper Cup and Robert Woods, then Odell Beckham on the field. He's going to be tough to start in a lineup setting format once we get to that point, but he has two-way handcuff upside with either an injury to Cup or an injury to Allen Robinson. And last year, Jefferson finished wide receiver 34 in half PPR. So it's not like he's not giving you numbers worth considering for a lineup spot, again, with Robert Woods and Odell Beckham. And those two combined for about wide receiver 24 level usage and production last season. Yeah, I still don't think Van Jefferson's very good. And, you know, the PFF numbers would agree with that. He was 81st in PFF receiving grade last year, 59th in yards per out run. Like you said, you know, he was he was wide receiver 34 and a half PPR points. He was 37th in expected fantasy points. So he was getting the usage. Really, that I think that stuff should be similar this season because you just, again, you have Allen Robinson just stepping into the role that Robert Woods plus Odell Beckham played last season. And to me, the upside with Van Jefferson is what if Allen Robinson really is done for whatever reason. And then Van Jefferson's kind of forced to become the number two wide receiver on this team. Boy, is that contract going to look bad if that turns out to be the case for Allen Robinson, Tyler Higby, I think the last pass catcher worth looking at here. And Jared, it felt like he kept letting us down last year, but I think it's probably just because the expectations were missed that he finished tight end 14 across formats on tight end 13 targets. So 
He yep. seemed to do what he should have done based on opportunity. Basically, uh, the knee injury in the NFC title game kept him out of the Super Bowl, and he has had to rehab that since. So we'll have to watch that this summer to make sure his knee's good to go. Yeah, he was tight on 11 in expected fantasy points per game, so he did underachieve that a bit. Um, he was seventh among tight ends in red zone targets and fifth in end zone targets. So that, you know, to me, that's where he underachieved is he should have scored more touchdowns than he did. Higby turned turned 29 this past January, and if you look at his PFF receiving gates grades, they've dropped off in three straight years now. Um, he was 17th out of 25 qualifiers this past season, so that's a, a slight concern for me. But like he's locked in as the starting tight end in what again should be a top 10 offense. Um, and we'll get to his ADP here, but he, he's going late enough for like you know he he's a guy who could score eight touchdowns easily just because he's going to be on the field for a strong offense. And again, he got that usage near the end zone last season, so I, I actually am in on Higby at his price right now. Yeah, he's in the right place for positive touchdown regression as the, yep. for all the reasons you just alluded to. So let's look at the whole ADP picture here using underdog ADP right now in non-super flex drafts. We've got Matthew Stafford at QB 12. We've got Cam Akers at RB 18, Daryl Henderson at RB 45, Cooper Cup, of course, wide receiver one, third overall among all players. Allen Robinson, wide receiver 22, Van Jefferson, wide receiver 65, and Tyler Higby, tight end 20. Any standouts to you right off the bat? I like all these guys, honestly. This is an offense I've been drafting a lot of. Again, my, my biggest concern is the offensive line, if it's going to take a significant step back without those two starters. But as long as they can shore that up, I think I think you know, I think Stafford at quarterback 12, he's he's not going to be a league winner, I don't think. You know, he's not going to finish quarterback three. But he's I don't think he's going to let you down at quarterback 12. The backfield, Akers at RB18 and Henderson at RB45, Like I think – it's very likely one of those guys easily beats that price tag. Either Akers is, you know, back to something close to his pre-injury form, gets feature back usage and finishes top 12. Or if he struggles coming back, Henderson, I think, gets at least enough work to, you know, return a profit on RB45. And then if he becomes the, you know, lead back, he, he's a he's a smash at that price tag. And then the wide receivers, I think they're all kind of fairly priced. I mean, you can definitely argue Van Jefferson at wide receiver 65 should be going higher because, again, he finished 30 spots higher than that. Um, he's definitely a better basketball guy. And with you, I think you said, you know, he's going to be tough to rely on in, in weekly lineup setting leagues. But basketball, again, he he played 80 percent of the Rams offensive snaps last season. He's going to be on the field for for a strong offense. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a terrific best ball pick because, again, he can score bottom wide receiver three numbers, even with everybody healthy. And yep. if either Cup or Allen Robinson goes down, then there's handcuff upside to him. So even at, he's come up a little bit to wide receiver 65. I think he's a terrific pick in that range. Um, Cooper cup, you know, I already said where I think he belongs. Allen Robinson has climbed a little bit. I mentioned wide receiver 22. I think that he's going to be going a little bit earlier than that. In most of these drafts, I think in the super flex puppy drafts that are going on right now, he's right at wide receiver 20, maybe even wide receiver 19. So he is getting a little bit high for his, um, situation. I think, I don't think he's a terrible pick there, especially if you have Stafford, but he's not somebody that I would consider a value at that level. Stafford is somebody I've only been considering if I already have Cooper Cup. Otherwise, I want to wait and see on the elbow. And I don't think that he has an advantage over Derek Carr and Kirk Cousins. Not a, like a big best ball advantage, at least, over Derek yeah. Carr Kirk Cousins in the same range. So not somebody that I'm chasing. Plus, behind him, we still have some running guys uh, like Justin Fields and, to a lesser degree, Trevor Lawrence that can outperform Stafford overall. 
Yeah, the Carr Cousins point is a good one. I think both those guys have the chance to be this year's Matt Stafford, where they you know have a highly efficient season and finish you know quarterback six or whatever. So I, I like getting those guys a bit later. But again, I think Stafford's fine, especially if you have taken Cooper Cup or Allen Robinson. I'm with you. I think Robinson is where he belongs right now. I hope he stays there because I'm still going to take him at wide receiver 22 when I have the chance. But if he climbs, you know, a few more spots, I think he'll be getting a bit pricey. And both Acres and Henderson are a little behind where we have them projected. Um, for yeah. their ADP. So you can take either both guys. I think once we get to more lineup setting, this is one handcuff that I would consider adding to acres. You know, usually mm-hmm. we don't want that to be the case because of the reasons that have been stated a lot. You're necessarily losing value when your starter goes down um, and the backup steps in. But this, I think, is one situation where it's such a high level offense that you would like the starter and it has looked like from the way Sean McVay has done things that if acres goes down, then we are going to get another lead back as opposed to a nebulous situation that we are overrating. So I think this is one of maybe like three situations league wide where I would be okay with handcuffing uh, Henderson, the backup to the starter acres. And that's what I would consider these two guys. You're, you're talking, you'd, you'd handcuff them even in like the best ball mania three. I, that's not something I would do often. I think it yeah. would be worth considering there because it would be different. I don't think there would be very many lineups that actually mm-hmm. do handcuff teammates like that. Yeah. I, I think it's borderline whether you'd want to do that in BBM three. I know uh, Theo Grebinger talks about his 10 round rule with handcuffs where he wants them to be separated by at least 10 rounds. These guys separated by about eight acres in the fourth mm-hmm. Henderson in the 12th. But um, I, I haven't taken them together in underdog drafts, but I've, I've left the majority. I'd have to look at the exact numbers, but I have I have one of these two guys on the majority of my best ball mania three teams because again I think one of them is a good bet to return a pretty nice profit. Yeah, and when I said handcuff, I was primarily talking about not these best ball drafts and yep. your lineup setting uh, team. But um, yeah, I, I agree that the, otherwise the way to treat them is if you don't take Acres, then give Henderson a look when you get later in the draft for sure for yep. best ball purposes especially. And we already talked about Tyler Higby. I agree. He's at a value level at tight end 20. Just there's not a whole lot of downside there, assuming his knee is good. San Francisco 49ers up next, Jared. Anything changing on the coaching or run pass front? Uh, Kyle Shanahan back for his sixth season with San Francisco. So it's going to be the same offensive system here. Um, Just kind of looking at what he's done, the, the trends we've seen. The Niners have slowed down recently, which we don't like. And they've also gone more and more run heavy the past few years. So uh, situation neutral pace the last three years, 20th, 31st, and then 28th. Um, they've been 19th, 9th, and 25th in total plays over that span. And then they've gone in situation neutral pass rate, 23rd in 2019, and then 29th and 30th the past two seasons. And of course, you know, this year we're assuming Trey Lance is going to be under center, which is only going to make them go more run heavy. I believe in the two Trey Lance starts last year, um, the Niners passed on just 46% of their offensive plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would assume that as well. And is that where, where did you set your run pass split and projecting this team? Well, let me pull that up. I think I'm at like four. They're one of the few teams I projected to to run more than pass. Yeah, I have them 48 percent pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were already 48 52 run pass last year. So something in that range certainly makes sense. And we saw you, you don't want to try to pull too much away from the little bit of Trey Lance we saw as a rookie because he was a rookie. He was forced into the lineup as opposed to something that they wanted to do. But we did see 24 carries from him in his two starts last year. So there should be plenty of quarterback running and um, just 12 
of his 27 total rushes for the season, according to PFF numbers, were scrambles. So more than half of the times that Trey Lance ran the ball last year, it was a designed run, whether that be RPO or specifically a ball that they wanted him to carry. Seven out of 18 scrambles in his two starts. So they're going to work in plenty of quarterback running. It's going to make it a run-heavy offense. Trey Lance himself, as a fantasy factor here, Jared, obviously the rushing is what we really are targeting with him as a fantasy quarterback. And the reason he's right around the bottom of QB one range, and really the the only reason to like him versus other fantasy quarterbacks, are you factoring any potential for the team not starting Trey Lance right away this season into your drafting right now? I'm not, especially now because in these basketball tournaments, you're just concerned about upside. Like if I, if I, you know, if I draft Trey Lance and he, he doesn't start for even the start of the season, you know, that team's probably not, probably not going to win best ball mania three. So I'm, I'm, I'm just taking him as if he's going to be there. I think it's like a 95% chance that he's, you know, starting week one. I, I, I still think Garoppolo is not going to be on that team come week one. Um, and, and I do think, you know, Lance still has massive upside. You mentioned the rushing. So, you know, we got those two starts from Lance last season. He had 120 rushing yards in those two starts. That's a, you know, full season pace. And I know it's a big extra- extrapolation to, you know, take two starts into a full season, but that's, that's over a thousand rushing yards. If Lance does that over a full season, still question marks as a passer, but I do think he's in a good passing environment. The 49ers have ranked top 14 in yards per attempt in all five seasons under Kyle Shanahan. That includes three top nine finishes and a pair of second place finishes. And Shanahan has not had great quarterbacks. I mean, it's been Garoppolo and then CJ Bathard, Brian Hoyer, Nick Mullins. I just think it's a good, system for quarterbacks and then he has good weapons obviously in Debo Samuel Brandon Ayuk and George Kill. yeah and I mean whether you think Kyle Shanahan is a god or overrated at this point mm-hmm. we have to at least acknowledge that he's been coaching NFL offense for a long time after growing up with a dad who coached NFL offenses so he knows what he's doing and if anybody knows how to do how to like design his offense around the talent then Kyle Shanahan's that guy and on the Jimmy Garoppolo front GM John Lynch said early in the offseason that the timing of the shoulder surgery for Garoppolo affected his market a quote from him is so now we hold on to him that doesn't sound like a team that's planning to start Jimmy Garoppolo or is even unsure about what it's going to do at quarterback so I agree I'm treating it as though Trey Lance is the starter here and treating the rest of the offense as though that the, that's the case. I think Trey Lance is one of three quarterbacks in the league that legitimately has a thousand rushing yards within his range of outcomes. To me, it would be Lance Lamar Jackson, who we've already seen do it and Jalen hurts. Okay. Yeah, I think it's fair. Um, and, and by the way, Shanahan has coached a mobile quarterback like this. He had RG three for his first two seasons in Washington. Griffin averaged 46 and a half rushing yards per game under Shanahan. He finished quarterback four, and then quarterback 15 in fantasy points per game those two seasons. The quarterback four was, was you know, as a rookie. Uh, just an, a, a terrific rookie season, and then they just yep. brutalized his knee at the end of that, and it yep. wrecked anything going forward. So, yeah, I, but, if, if Trey Lance looks anything like rookie year Robert Griffin, then we've all been under uh, drafting him to this point. And he might, honestly, he might. Yeah, we'll have to see. It, it's going to be fun to watch either way. Running back, Elijah Mitchell, and Jared, this is somebody I, I've been laying out my case for basically all offseason. It's on. It's a free article on Draft Sharks if you want to read the whole thing. But basically, this is why I've headed into this offseason as a sell in general on Mitchell, both for redraft and dynasty. Lackluster prospect, both as a college prospect and then as a pro prospect. Split work in college with Raymond Calais, Trey Ragas, and Chris Smith. He was a sixth-round pick despite testing well in pre-draft. Um, 
he got a bunch of carries last year, 18.8 per game, of course, around injuries. He is the first Shanahan running back in San Francisco to average more than 15 carries a game. Carlos Hyde, Raheem Mostert were the previous top two. Each of those guys saw their carry averages drop the following year. Every Kyle Shanahan running back who has ever averaged 10 or more carries in a season has seen his carries per game (laughs) decline the year after that's across four franchises where Kyle Shanahan has run the offense for at least two straight seasons. So it's likely that Elijah Mitchell does not get as many carries per game this year as he got last year. He did not catch a ton of passes last year, so we shouldn't expect big stuff there. Now, the caveat here is that (laughs) Elijah Mitchell was RB 20 back when I said, I'm not excited about him. He's now down to RB 24. I think that's a fair level, especially when we're talking a best ball format where we're just looking for spike weeks. He's still not somebody I'm excited about, but I'm not saying he's a bad pick at his current price. Yeah, I'm with you there. I kind of want to be out on Mitchell. And I still am, honestly. I'm not sure I've drafted him a single time. That's that's more, though, because I'm usually drafting wideouts in that range. I'm with you that RB24 is a pretty fair price for Mitchell. Um, I do think there's probably still more downside to upside there because, I mean, even last year, what was he, 16th in uh, PPR points per game? Because he just didn't do a whole lot in the passing game, and I think that's going to continue. Um, you have Ty Davis-Price, who arrived in the third round. He's at least you know some of a threat, I think, to Mitchell's volume. And then Trey Lance is a, a big threat to Mitchell's volume, I think, especially near the goal line. So you know, I, I, I don't think he's a bad pick where he's going, but you know, he's still kind of guy type of guy I'm avoiding for the most part. Yeah, RB12 and half PPR points per game last year. So there is the upside there, but things broke completely right for him last year where he got lead carry um, work. He was getting that goal line stuff. Jimmy Garoppolo claimed 5% of San Francisco's red zone rushes, 8% inside the 10, 14% inside the five. Trey Lance could double that number inside the five and easily lead this team in carries inside the five yard line. So I think Trey Lance is a huge threat to Elijah Mitchell, you know, on top of just the general, like Kyle Shanahan does not go with a workhorse back year after year. Yeah. This is another offensive line. I'm worried about too. Um, center longtime center, Alex Mack retired and they lost Lake and Tomlinson to the jets and free agency. If you look at, you know, they, they have two great offensive tackles, but they're, Guard spots in the center spot are major question marks. Um, by the way, I posted our offensive line article for the year on, on Draft Sharks today, so that's up there. You can check out. And you know, the, the Niners made that as a team I'm concerned about. So I, you're you're kind of banking on you know Shanahan's scheme to to keep this as a top notch running game. I do think the O line, especially in the interior, is going to struggle. Oh yeah, and by the way, I also posted the running back strength of schedule article on Wednesday, so you can head to draftsharks.com and read that and see exactly how the matchups look week by week for every single team in the league for those running backs. You mentioned Ty Davis-Price. I'm not going to lie. I didn't didn't know a whole lot about him heading into the draft. (laughs) It's noteworthy that they drafted him in round three. Of course, we learned from Trey Sermon last year that we don't want to look at that guy and say, oh, Kyle Shanahan loves him. He's going to get the ball a lot, but that's just one of those signals that Kyle Shanahan knows he shouldn't have a workhorse back year to year. He's like, I want to have a whole stable and whatever these horses can give me, I'm going to get it out of them. So we've got Ty Davis price. Trey Sermon is still around. Jeff Wilson jr. Is still currently on the roster and Jermichael hasty is still there. Yeah. I think Ty Davis price was a surprise third rounder. Um, And he just doesn't look like a great prospect to me. I mean, he didn't do much over his first two seasons at LSU, just 741 total rushing yards in those two seasons. And then last year, you know, he goes for 1,000 yards and six touchdowns, 4.8 yards per carry. It's kind of just okay production. If you look at 
PFF rushing grades, 95th among 161 qualifiers last year, 108th in elusive rating. Also didn't do much in the passing game at LSU, just 28 catches across his three seasons there. He is 219 pounds. He ran a 4.48, so it gives him an 89th percentile speed score. That's kind of the best thing going in his favor, but he, he just doesn't look like a great prospect to me. And you're just, you're just kind of banking on the Shanahan thing if you're drafting him right now, I think. If you have a Shanahan in your life and you need to get them a Christmas present, you get them a running back that nobody thinks anything of because there's nothing in the world that those Shanahans love more than that. And sometimes they work out, but oftentimes they don't. I mean, let's not pretend like all of Shanahan's you know guys have worked out. There was who who was the uh, who was the other guy? Uh, Joe, Joe Williams. Williams. Joe Williams. Yep. Joe Williams and Trey Sermon. I mean, those are two of the bigger busts in recent memory. And even guys that start out working out, Alfred Morris, Ryan Terrain, things can go wrong there. Steve Slayton in Houston. Those are some of the names that, if you look back over Kyle Shanahan backs and see where things went after big seasons, they you're like, yep. oh yeah, I remember that guy. I loved him his second <laughs> year, and he did not love him back. Pass catchers for San Francisco. It starts with Debo Samuel. And, you know, we all know how last year went for him. The first eight games, 10.1 targets, 0.8 carries per game. From week 10 through the playoffs, he averaged 4.9 targets and 7.3 carries per game. So Kyle Shanahan, offensive genius, had the league's number one wide receiver at that point and was like, you know what? I bet he would look good as Chase Edmonds. Yeah, Mitchell was dealing with injuries, at least for some of that spanner. I'm trying to remember what the impetus was to, to change that role up. But it, it, I think Debo is going to be in something much, much closer to what we saw over the first eight games of the season. I think that that's what he wants to be. I think that's what's caused a lot of the friction between him and the Niners is he doesn't want to be used in, in that running back role because he knows it's going to make him more likely to get hurt. Um, and I think in fantasy, we, we want him in that role because if you look at expected fantasy points, he was eighth among wide receivers and expected fantasy points over those first eight games. He was just 24th in expected fantasy points over the final eight games. You know, those targets are worth a lot more to us than, than the carries are. That is the funniest thing I think about everybody searching for the next Debo Samuel. It's like, <laughs> we don't want Debo Samuel to stay Debo Samuel because it seems like that was great for his fantasy value because he scored on 13.2% of his rushes. Nobody keeps doing that. By comparison, last year, James Conner, Damian Harris scored 15 times on the ground. Those guys scored at 7.4% rates per their carries. That's a high rate that is not going to get repeated. Double that, and you're in Debo Samuel territory. So, I mean, nothing about the way Debo Samuel's season went in 2021 is going to happen again. And, I mean, that's all not even mentioning that he led the league in yards per catch. So you mentioned the expected fantasy points in the first half of the season. He was already outperforming that just as a receiver before they turned him into a running back. Now, what is it going to look like? I agree with you. We should assume that it looks more like the first half of the season because Debo at the end of the way last year finish was like, I don't want this anymore. And they're like, but we don't want you to go. Oh, we think we can work things out. Working things out better be turning Debo back into what he was the first half of last season. Yeah, and again, that'd be good news. But if you look at those first eight games again, 31% target share for Debo Samuel. I don't think he's going to hit that over the course of the season. Remember, Brandon Ayuk was kind of in the doghouse to open last year. I think that kind of elevated Debo's target share. Then you have the Trey Lance effect, whatever that's going to be. Again, I think it's going to mean at least slightly less passing for the 49ers. And as excited as I am about Lance as a fantasy prospect, I think it's likely that he's a worse passer than Jimmy Garoppolo at this point of their career. So 
that's probably going to hurt Debo Samuel's efficiency in the passing game as well. So, and then we haven't even got to the injury stuff yet, which I, I don't like to bake in a ton, but everyone hated Debo coming into last season because the guy couldn't stay healthy. And now, you know, he stays relatively healthy for one season and everyone's kind of forgotten all about the durability stuff. Yeah. I mean, Garoppolo has completed 68% of his passes for his career. So I agree. We have to start out assuming that there's going to be a loss in efficiency here and done well on yards per pass attempt. So it's not like he was, you know, winning by throwing screen passes. So we have to expect, I think, some loss in efficiency. And I agree on not counting too much on the injury stuff because that's where we can get in trouble when a guy stays healthy. And the reason to not worry too much about that with Debo is because the other factors already say be wary of Debo going early. I'll wait a few more minutes to get to his ADP and and how that has already changed. But we'll move on to Brandon Ayuk for now. You mentioned started last season in the doghouse. Kyle Shanahan admitted he was not pleased with where Brandon Ayuk was at that point. Ayuk did navigate that got on the field more over the final 11 regular season games. He played 88% of the snaps or more in each of those got 21% of the targets over that span and was wide receiver 16 in PPR scoring. Yeah. So I think playing time wise, that's where we're going to expect Ayuk to be this season. But again, you had Debo Samuel playing, you know, half running back, half wide receiver over that span. I think that helped Ayuk get to 21% target share, which is a solid number. It's not huge, but I think, I think that's probably coming down this season, if we expect Debo to be more in, in back in a traditional wide receiver role, if George Kittle stays healthy, you know, he missed a few games last season. So, and we'll talk about Ayuk's ADP, but I don't think he's, you know, he, as you said, wide receiver 16 over those final 11 games. I don't expect him to, to come anywhere close to that this season. Again, you, you got the Trey Lance stuff too, where you might see fewer passing and, and, and less efficient passing. Yeah, I don't think we'll get back to that either, um, but we'll talk about his price in a moment. George Kittle, the last pass catcher, really worth talking about here. Did miss a few games last year. I believe it was a calf injury for him. Lost three full games and a little bit of others. Um, Was pretty good otherwise. 94 targets, 71 catches, 910 yards. So um, I I think probably the biggest question for him, you know, aside from staying healthy, which is a perennial question for him, but is what the offense looks like. And I think that the target share matters a little bit less for Kittle because he's at a position where you don't need to dominate target wise to have, you know, to start out in the top 12 and to have the ultimate ceiling. Sure. Yeah. I mean, no, Kittle was awesome last year. Tight end three in PPR points per game. Uh, he was second in yards per target, first in yards per route run, first in PFF receiving grade among 35 tight ends with 40 plus targets last season. My concerns, you know, he, like you said, he missed another three games. He, he had missed 11 over his first four NFL seasons. So he, he's yet to really have a healthy season yet. Uh, his target share has been shrinking. It was 27% in 2019 down to 23% in 2020, 21.5% last year. Um, and then, again, you, you throw in the, the Trey Lance stuff. Is it going to be, you know, less l- less passing and, and less efficiency? So, you know, we'll get to the ADP here. But Kitt- Kittle's a guy I've been mostly staying away from at his price just because there's guys going later, you know, often quite a bit later that I think have, have similar projections, similar at least season-long ceiling. You know, Kittle does still bring a massive weekly ceiling. He had five weeks as a top five PPR tight end last season so that's to me that's the best argument for him in best ball is you know he's he's up there with you know Kittle or with uh, Kelsey you know maybe like Andrews and Waller as you know guys with the highest weekly ceilings but um I'm, I'm mostly off him especially as we start to get to the to uh, lineup setting leagues yeah did have a good touchdown season last year at least versus the previous so we know that there's some Finally. upside after he was basically Julio Jones in that category <laughs> yeah. through his first right. four years let's move on to the ADPs and compare all those pass catches to begin with we've got um Debo Samuel at wide receiver eight, 
We've got Brandon Ayuk at wide receiver 41, George Kittle at tight end five. Debo started draft season inside of round one, and that was an absurd ADP that I was <laughs> staying completely away from. Jared at wide receiver eight, he's in the middle of round two. I'm still not chasing him there, but I think he's at least at the level where when you're talking about a best ball tournament with these one-off yeah. weeks at the end of the year, he's in the mix for me in that range. He is. I mean, that's still a handful of spots higher than we have him ranked, but like if you know, if we're talking about doing multiple best ball drafts and trying to, you know, smooth out your exposure a little bit, I, I I'll start to try to get some Debo now when he gets to the end of the second round. I think that's, that's fair, honestly, because he's, he's in a tier of guys that go, in that range. Like once the top six or seven are off the board, you can make an argument for the next, you know, 10 or so guys. So yeah, Debo, Sam, Debo Samuel's ADP is getting more fair, but we'll see if it continues to, to drop. Yeah. If you're playing in a full season best ball tournament where, you know, counts all the points as opposed to those playoff weeks, or once we're setting lineups, he's still a, an avoid player for me at that level. Yeah. But even like it, when he was inside round one, it was a total avoid um, across formats. Brandon Ayuk is more interesting because he's wide receiver 41. You mentioned we don't really think that he – we don't think you should expect him to finish around wide receiver 16 like he performed late last year, but he doesn't have to get close to that to pay off at wide receiver 41. Now, he still hasn't been a target player for me because if you look around – within a round of ADP, either before or after Brandon Ayuk, we also have Drake London, Michael Thomas, Russell Gage, Hunter Renfro, Traylon Burks, Christian Kirk – Alan Lazard, Kadarius Tony, Tyler Lockett. So to me, Brandon Ayuk doesn't stand out with a flashing sign in that group saying, draft me because I'm going to win your league. He's in the mix. He's fine among those guys. I won't avoid him. I'll consider him in that group, but he just doesn't, he's, I, I'm not highlighting him. Yeah, same for me. I mean, just looking at our half PPR rankings, he's wide receiver 48. And again, it's, it's, it's a big tier, you know, 10 guys ahead of him, 10 guys below him. You can kind of argue all those guys. You know, if I if I draft Trey Lance, you know, I, I do probably still want to stack him with – guys like Lance, I'm stacking him with just one pass catcher. I'm not double stacking Trey Lance in these tournaments because so much of his value is going to come from his legs. Um, but I do want to get, you know, one Niners pass catcher. And I do – to me, Ayuk is a better value where he's going than versus Debo and, and Kittle at ADP. I would consider Ayuk and Kittle pretty even. Um, Kittle is tight end five, so, you know, it's it's fine to like Dalton Schultz, TJ Hawkinson, Dallas Goddard right. better than him. But he is also a round and a half behind Kyle Pitts, who's tight end three. Um, Kyle Pitts is more, a little bit more than a round behind Mark Andrews. So if we're talking about George Kittle at like three rounds behind Mark Andrews on a Trey Lance team, then I like the value there. And I think Kittle is in, yeah. even in the mix without Trey Lance, just not like a like a – screaming value yeah i mean early fifth round which seems okay in a vacuum but like he's going 20 picks ahead of dalton schultz he's going 50 picks ahead of dallas goddard which that that's the tough one for me like if i knew if i know i can get goddard you know four rounds later i'd much rather have him than kittle again kittle to me does win on weekly upside which is important in best ball um, but man 50 picks is just that that gap is just way way too big in my opinion yeah, and this is a good example where we have to think different ways for uh, you know lineup setting versus these best ball drafts. Because if I'm choosing one of them at those relative values, it's very easily Dallas Goddard. If yeah. I'm you know drafting twenty best ball teams, then I'm definitely having um, some George yes. Kittle in there. That's yeah. I think you definitely want some Kittle because again, he does have that massive upside because he's still a great player. Um, we talked about where Trey Lance is going. We talked about where Elijah Mitchell is going. TDP is at RB 51 for me. I, I don't think I've drafted him at all yet. I, that might end up being a mistake, but I feel fine about it. I'm not worried about an ultimate ceiling. You have anybody else that you're interested in among the Niners? No, I do think you want to get 
Davis Price now if you can. Because, man, a lot of I, I hear a lot of people hyping him up, and I do think his ADP is probably going to keep rising. I don't know. P- p- drafters just want to find that, like, next Niners back, I think. And everyone's kind of like – that doesn't want to make the safe play of Mitchell. They want to, you know, get crazy with the Davis Price pick. That's the thing, though, is there isn't a safe play in a Shanahan backfield. Right. So I, I think yep. the allure is taking the cheaper – um, 49ers back. I think it's worth at least considering Trey Sermon it's, at the end of some drafts, yeah. because if we're looking for the cheap guy, I mean, this time last year, if somebody told you to take Elijah Mitchell, you'd be like, what Trey? They just drafted Trey Sermon. They have Raheem Mostert. Who is Elijah Mitchell? Six round pick. Get out of my face. Mm-hmm. So here we are a year later. Trey Sermon was a third round pick. I'm not saying I'm expecting a lot from him, but you know, if yeah. we're looking at Eno Benjamin or Trey Sermon, it's like, okay, I guess there's a path for Trey Sermon. Yeah, I think I'd need like 25 rounds to, to get to Trey Sermon. You know, maybe in the Draft Sharks Invitational, I'll, I'll take a shot at him. I, I do think Davis Price is still a fine pick where he's going now. I mean, he's in the 14th round in underdog drafts. I think he's fine. I'm just worried he's going to climb higher. And then Trey Lance, I mean, quarterback 11, he was going higher than that last year, wasn't he? Even like we didn't even know if he was going to start the season. He ended up not, obviously. So um, I, I still think there's – even if he struggles as a passer, like if we get the running, we think we're going to um, – He's he's at least going to like you know break even at quarterback eleven, and he does have top five upside because he could run for a thousand yards, like we said. I think he started this draft season at like tight end eight or nine, and then fell yep. when Garoppolo didn't get traded, and there were the there were the reports of like oh he still doesn't look great in what February practices. I don't even know what those are. So <laughs> that's a, he's a good example of why you maybe you want to try to get some draft exposure depending on how much drafting you want to do, but you watch guys like that and you could say, I'm out on Trey Lance at that price. Oh, now I'm in on that price. Now I'm kind of 50, 50 on this price. And you can kind of mix your exposures that way. For sure. Yep. On to the Seattle Seahawks to close out the NFC West on this beast of a podcast already coaching changes. Nothing new because the Seahawks uh, seem to favor nothing new. Pete Carroll, I think is the head coach in perpetuity. Shane Waldron is back for year two as the offensive coordinator. The plays per game were down for them last year from 63.9 to 56.1, which looks like a terrible drop. A lot of that can be fluky, though, especially because their play pace was actually up. We heard about Shane Waldron wanting to work fast, and the Seahawks went from 22nd in situation neutral pace in 2020 to 8th. Last year, they were up from 19th in overall play pace, you know, all situations to sixth last year. So they were moving. They just weren't very good. So the team also finished ninth in yards per play with what was not a very good offense. Now, the big loss from that is Russell Wilson, of course. And even last year's lesser version of Russell Wilson that spent about half of his season coming off an injured finger on his throwing hand still averaged 7.8 yards per pass attempt. So They're probably not going to be a good yards per play offense this year, Mm -hmm. but it's not Shane Waldron's fault. At least it seems like. Yeah. The the Seahawks play volume thing is like one of the craziest stories to me uh, of last season. And that's, you know, talking from like from a fantasy nerd perspective, I guess I'm sure most people don't probably care about it, but yeah, I mean, it was, they they ran the third fewest plays per game in the last 10 years. So it was like, you know, historically low, play volume as you said they they ran at a quick pace and just you know just naturally i think the play volume is going to come up you look at the other teams that finish at the bottom of the league in plays like they tend to run like you know 50 to 100 more plays the next season so that that's something working in this offense's favor um what i don't like is that seattle was 24th in situation neutral pass rate last season with russell wilson you know now they have drew lock or geno smith like it's definitely going to remain 
a run leaning offense. Yeah. Pete Carroll is like, finally, I get away from that generational quarterback. It's a generational strong. Finally, I get away from this star quarterback and I get into my comfort zone with absolute garbage, taking the ball from the center and handing it to running backs the way the football should be played. Last year was the fifth highest pass rate among 12 Pete Carroll seasons. So, of course, they got rid of the quarterback. As you mentioned, 24th in situation neutral pass rate. That pass rate spiked in 2020 before dipping back down to last year's level. So, I mean, Pete Carroll hasn't even been secretive about it. He got rid of his OC when they had that spike in pass rate, and now he's gotten rid of his quarterback. He just wants an ugly-ass offense that can get his defense back onto the field, and that's what he's going to get. Let's just go straight into the quarterbacks now, Jared, unless you feel like telling the folks what the run-pass split's going to be. Well, I, I did. I did. I was looking at my projections. It's kind of interesting. So, like last year, they were fifty-six and a half percent pass. I have them down at fifty-four and a half percent pass this season. But I have them running like seventy more plays. So I actually actually have them projected to throw it twenty more times this year than they did last year. They should be trailing plenty too, which will help that. For I sure. think that they're going to be forty percent pass and sixty percent run <laughs> at least. <laughs> uh, Pete Carroll's heaven. Now, quarterback doesn't really matter for fantasy because we don't know right now who it's going to be. Drew Locke, Geno Smith, right now. Geno Smith is the leader in the competition, but when Pete Carroll talks about it, he's like, I think Drew Locke just needs some time and I think he'll get there. So it sounds like he wants Drew Locke to be the guy that said we had um, KJ Wright, who's not on the team anymore, but was recently with the Seahawks and probably still talks plenty to current Seahawks veterans. He's saying Geno Smith is the guy that I would want leading that team if I were still a Seahawk. And we also have reports that the Seattle Seahawks are still interested in acquiring Baker Mayfield and maybe even extending his contract. So among those, my favorite avenue would be (laughs) Baker Mayfield becoming the Seahawks quarterback. I think that would be best for fantasy outlook. And even that, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's a low QB too. Yeah. And if it's Gino or Drew Locke, I think that's a guy you're drafting only in super flex leagues. Like even, even in best ball, I don't, I think you can do better as a, as a quarterback three. I think, you know, we know what Gino Smith is. He's what he's you know going to be 32 in October. Um, and Drew Locke was just bad over his, his three seasons in Denver. So yeah, we need, we need Baker to come in and save DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. That's right. And we'll talk more about Baker once he has a team. It's not a whole lot to say right now. It's not really a point in, in talking about it too much. The running backs, Give us more to talk about because Seattle loves some running backs. Uh, Kenneth Walker, a second round pick, joins the mix. That was after they re-signed Rashad Penny once he hit the open market. Chris Carson, of course, is still on the roster, but not a whole lot being said about him right now. Jared, let's start out with Walker. What do you think of the Michigan State alum? He looks like a great prospect as a runner. I mean, you know, he, he was just okay in his two seasons at Wake Forest. He was actually the RB2 in both those seasons had he only about 200, 220 total carries. Then he transferred to Michigan state this past season, had a, a massive season, over 1600 rushing yards, 18 rushing touchdowns, led the country in missed tackles forced, according to pro football focus, had a nice combine, you know, 211 pounds, 95th percentile, 40 time, 75th percentile, broad jump. Um, so again, I think, I think he's going to hit as a runner in the NFL in the passing game though. He, he looks like at least right now, he looks like a zero. Six total catches across his two seasons at Wake, just 13 catches as you know Michigan State's workhorse back this past season. And you, know, you can say, you know, Michigan State wasn't an elite passing offense. That's true, um, but the market share of receiving yards was poor, 2.7 percent. Then you look at the PFF grades. So 169 running backs saw 15 plus targets last season. Walker was 109th among those 169 in PFF receiving grade. 
and 163rd in yards per route run. So and there's nothing you can point to in his profile that says he's going to be an asset in the passing game, at least right now. I mean, guys, guys can improve. Um, but as of now, it doesn't look like he's going to do much there. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to say that a guy can't catch passes just because he didn't in his one year for a college offense that hasn't been very favorable to um, running back receiving, but we also can't look at what he did and say, yeah, he can catch passes. We shouldn't worry about that aspect. Right. Rashad Penny, of course, has not been much of a receiver so far in the NFL either. 31 total targets through four seasons with the Seahawks, 280 total carries as well. So he hasn't been much of anything for Seattle outside of basically the final six games of last season. He was very good then finished last year with a robust 6.3 yards per carry. And actually he's been good in that area overall 5.6 yards per rush for his career. So we've got Rashad Penn and we've got Kenneth Walker and we've got an offense that doesn't excite anybody, which doesn't help either player. I mean, I think Penny was more than very good over the final five weeks of last season. I mean, he had 671 rushing yards. That was 200 more yards than any other player. He led all running backs in PPR and non-PPR points over that span. He led all 61 qualifying running backs in PFF rushing grade. He was second to only Michael Carter in elusive rating over that span. Now, as you said, you know, he'd been a disappointment over his first three and a half seasons. He just hadn't been able to, to stay healthy. And the, the Seahawks did let Penny hit free agency this offseason. Uh, now, they eventually re-signed him one-year deal, close to $6 million, a little more than $5 million guaranteed, so pretty nice one-year contract. But it wasn't like they you know, didn't want to let him even test the waters. Um, and then they spent the 41st overall pick on Kenneth Walker. So I I, I don't know how this back was going to shake out. I'm not sure the Seahawks do. You know, it does seem like Carroll's pretty into the, you know, let's let the best player play kind of thing. It's probably going to be some sort of committee. We talked about neither of these guys doing much in the passing game in their career so far. You know, Seattle also still has DJ Dallas and Travis Homer, who are those, you know, kind of satellite pass catching back. So, you know, this honestly could be a three-headed backfield in a bad offense. So, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the ADPs on this, these guys. They're not crazy, but it's still a situation I've just been mostly staying away from. Yeah, I don't think it's a good thing for Rashad Penny that he couldn't get a Chase Edmonds contract somewhere on the open market. Obviously, it's it it's not a good thing for him that they drafted Kenneth Walker. Let's go ahead and jump to the ADPs on these guys because I think it's it's worth looking at for both of them. Now, Rashad Penny, the way he finished last year sets me up heading into the offseason to say, okay, we have a lot more bad than we have good. If people are excited about him, then I'm not going to be touching him. But Right now in ADP, we've got Kenneth Walker at RB29. We've got Rashad Penny at RB37, nearly two rounds behind Kenneth Walker. And as we've been saying, it's not yet clear who's going to be the lead back here. So to me, Rashad Penny looks interesting based on how he finished last season, based on being on a team that we know wants to run the ball as much as possible, and based on being cheaper than a rookie who we know nothing about on the NFL level. Yeah, I mean, to me, both guys are priced as if they're going to be sharing carries, which I do think is most likely. But like if one of them emerges as even a guy getting, you know, 65, 70 percent of the carries then they're they're probably going to pay off at the price tag. So, uh, I mean, looking at it that way, they're probably guys I should be getting some pieces of going forward. Um, but I don't know, I've just I've just found guys and it, honestly, it's more that I've been taking, you know, other positions in that area of the draft. Like I don't think RB 29 and RB 36 is, is crazy for Walker and Penny. Um, again, I, I just think more likely than not, it's going to be a frustrating situation, especially when we get to lineup setting leagues. But again, best ball, I do think both guys do have some upside at, at these prices. 
Yeah, I don't think that I would pair them up on the same roster because I don't think the offense will be good enough to support both running backs the way that I would be okay with doing so with Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson, for example. But either or is fine. I would lean toward Penny because he's later than Kenneth Walker, and I will absolutely refuse to ever call him Ken Walker because that makes him sound like a middle reliever from the 80s. That's true. Chris Carson, by the way, somebody I talked about back in spring I'm going to wait until there's something positive on him to draft him at all. He's down to RB 77. So he's basically undrafted, but you know, we're at the stage where I need some reason to believe that he can still. And and even if he's healthy, like, I don't know. I I still think he'd open as the third, just with the investments that uh, Seattle made in Walker, especially then again, even Penny uh, to be getting, you know, over 5 million guaranteed this year. I, I think he'd at least be ahead of Carson to start. Pass catchers. Some obviously interesting guys here as well. Lots of talent. If they could only get a quarterback, DK Metcalf went from 65.8% catch rate, 15.3 yards per catch over his first five games last year to 55%, 11.7 per catch after Russell Wilson's finger injury. I got those numbers, by the way, from the Draft Sharks rankings page. If you check uh, DK Metcalf's player page from there, the early numbers for Metcalf last season were pretty much in line with what he did over his first two seasons. So that doesn't bode particularly well for Russell Wilson being gone and whatever being yeah. the new quarterback in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, the dip in efficiency stuff for Metcalf last year to me was totally due to, you know, Geno Smith plus Russell Wilson playing through the finger injury. Metcalf actually earned an identical PFF receiving grade in 2021 as he did in 2022. He was 16th in 2020, finished 12th among wide receivers last year. So he still remained an excellent player last year. The quarterback issue is obviously the concern heading into this season. You know, we did get three Metcalf games with Geno Smith last season, and the fantasy numbers were actually there. He went 658, 296, 1, and 643, 2. So the numbers were there, but, it, you know, that's kind of flimsy production when you're you know, catching two balls and for 96 yards and a score, and you're scoring twice on six catches. So I'm, I'm, I'm still concerned, obviously. You have to be concerned about the quarterback situation in Seattle, but. You know, but we'll talk about it, I guess, in the ADP coming up here. But, you know, Metcalf, the quarterback concern is, is priced in on Metcalf to me. I agree. Tyler Lockett, the same thing. We know he's a good player. Four straight finishes among the top 16 across fantasy formats. Career high in yards per route run last year. Uh, an A dot that was actually deeper than DK Metcalf last year. So you look at them, you think Metcalf's the downfield guy and Tyler Lockett's a slot guy or whatever. That's not how they are. They're both players capable of working downfield. They're both good players. And let's go ahead and jump to those ADPs, Jared, because, you know, it's easy to look at the player and the QB situation and say, yeah, but they have no quarterback anymore. I don't like them. Neither does anybody else. DK Metcalf is wide receiver 23 right now. Tyler Lockett is wide receiver 45. So you don't have to like Tyler Lockett or his situation right now to draft him. All you have to do is say, well, Tyler Lockett's still playing football as far as I know. I guess I'll stick him on my best ball roster and see if he can have a couple of big weeks. It is. It's not fun for me clicking on Metcalf and Lockett because I just, you know, I, I see Geno Smith and Drew Locke dancing around in my head when I do it. But, uh, man, I just still think they're both awesome talents. And they're just, again, the quarterback stuff is, is priced in. Like, you know, Metcalf's going 15 spots lower than he finished two years ago and even like eight spots lower than he finished last year. Metcalf or Lockett's going like 30 spots lower than he's finished the past four years. So yeah, I, I, I've been drafting them and I think it's better in basketball too. Cause I, I do think it's going to be erratic. I mean, the, 
both of them, especially Lockett, has been a kind of volatile producer anyways, even with Russell Wilson. I think that's going to continue, maybe get worse um, with this new quarterback situation. But, like, it, it, it's still just those guys. Like, it's you know, no one else is going to be stealing targets from them. Um, you know, we'll talk about Noah Fant. Maybe he takes a bit more than Everett did last year. But, like, the, the volume is still going to be there for Lockett and Metcalf. And we talked again that Seahawks are very likely going to run quite a few more plays this season. That's just going to be more uh, more targets for to go around for both those guys. Yeah, I will take Lockett between them because of that wide receiver 45 yep. ADP, but I'm fine with taking Metcalf as well. And one way that you could make it a little bit more fun is to take either Metcalf or Lockett, especially Lockett, take Baker Mayfield late as a third quarterback in a, in a best ball lineup and add Robbie Anderson late to that team. That way, if Baker Mayfield goes to Seattle, you've got a Tyler Lockett, Baker Mayfield stack. If Mayfield goes to Carolina, you've got the Baker Robbie Anderson stack. You have not invested much in anything there. And there's only upside from where those guys are going. Throw in uh Donovan Peoples Jones late too, just in, just in case, you know, Mayfield and then and the Browns repair things. Nah, that's your Jacoby Brissett and DPJ stack. I can't, I can't imagine right now Baker Mayfield starting for, the Cleveland Browns in week one this season. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I won't get into too much. I mean, what if that's his only option? Like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, the way that it's got the, the, I don't know the degree to which they've gotten there. Right. It's, it's tough to imagine, but I can't say that it's, that it, that it definitely won't happen. So I wouldn't argue against it. All right. So Noah Fant will finish up with here. Noah Fant is quote excited about the offense. That will be tight end friendly. Pete Carroll says that Noah Fant had the most spectacular mini camp of anyone this spring for Seattle. So good things for Noah Fant. And let's just go ahead and throw in his price here because you might say, yeah, everybody's excited, but it's a terrible offense with no quarterback. Yeah, but he's tight end 22 right. and he's had top 12 numbers the past two years and top 12 target rates. 90 targets will get you into the top 12 at tight end. That'd be an 18.2% share from last year's Seahawks. We've talked about how low their plays were historically low. So they're almost definitely coming up. Seattle's tight ends combined for 19.8% target share last year. They were over 19% each of the previous two years as well. So it's pretty easy to project Noah Fant for top 12 targets among tight ends. Uh, it, it is. I mean, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't call last year's offense tight end friendly. I mean, you know, 19% target share for the group. That's a bit below league wide average. And, and Gerald Everett as Seattle's lead tight end, 14.7% target share. I mean, I, I think fans going to beat that mark this season just because he's a better player. Uh, you know, former first round pick, big time athlete, you talk, said uh, top 12 PPR tight end in the last two seasons. And that, you know, that's come with bad quarterback play. He's ba- had bad quarterback play all three years in Denver. So he's, he's used to that at least. Um, so yeah, another guy, like I don't go into draft saying I, I got to have Noah fan on this team, but like, you know, tight end 22, if I'm looking for that, you know, second tight end behind an elite guy or, or, you know, part of a three tight end build. I think, you know, fan makes a lot of sense at that price. Yeah. And I should say easy to envision top 12 targets for Noah fan, as opposed to project, which I think is the matter of considering it quite possible versus yeah. expecting it to happen. I mean, he should finish top 12 in the, among tight ends and targets like he's talented enough where he should definitely be in, in that group Noah Fant and Evan Ingram are great reasons to just do whatever you want a tight end if you want to take somebody earlier do it if you don't want to you can wait and both of those guys have top 12 upside and they're both going at the bottom of tight end two territory 
Yeah, I've been trying to back off David and Joku with the the Watson stuff, and you know, start to mix in more Fant. Gerald Everett's another guy. You know, not to get out of the NFC West here, but there are there are a lot of later round tight ends that are intriguing. Yeah, I think David Njoku is still fine price wise, no matter who the quarterback is. But we'll talk about that when we get to that division, because that's going to do it for this first of the eight division preview episodes. If you're a fan of our show, this show or other episodes, um, like and subscribe on on YouTube, wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate that as well. Maybe even tell a friend about us. You don't have to keep us as your personal secret. Um, if you want even more from us, become a DS insider to get your customizable draft war room that you can sync with these underdog drafts that we've been alluding to throughout, get sleeper picks delivered right to you during the draft. Our draft room even goes as a sidebar onto underdog right now. So you can be on the underdog screen and the draft sharks recommendations are right there following you through the draft. I've been using those in the super flex drafts in recent days. So if you haven't done underdog yet, if you haven't become a DS insider, do both of those. You can use promo code sharks on underdog to get a deposit match, get some free drafts in there, come compete against us and everybody else that's doing them. Jared, what do you, what do you think of all that? No, I was going to say the sidebar is freaking sweet. And honestly, I've only been doing slow drafts so far. I'm a, I'm a slow draft guy in underdog, so it's not really needed. But once I get into the fast drafts, having my rankings right there in the draft room, I don't have to be clicking around to multiple screens. That's, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, I've always been a slow draft lover as well because it allows you to do it at whatever pace. But I've also read recently about how the fast drafts have produced bigger scores in these tournaments over the past few years, which you can understand because they're more likely to let guys slip or yep. have you know owners just time out and make picks that they didn't mean to pick. So, you know, whatever your style, we're certainly ready to help you out either way. But it, it's a time to take advantage wherever you're starting from. So, uh, join us there. Come on, become a DS Insider. For Jared Smola and the rest of the Draft Sharks crew, I'm Matt Shaft saying thanks so much for swimming with us.